The Old Testament reading is found from the book of Numbers, chapter 16. Now Korah, son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, along with Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, descendants of Reuben, took 250 Israelite men, leaders of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, and they confronted Moses. They assembled against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. All the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Then he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will make known who is his and who is holy and who will be allowed to approach him. The one whom he will choose, he will allow to approach him. And Moses said, this is how you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. It has not been of my own accord. If these people die a natural death or if a natural fate comes on them, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. As soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them was split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with their households, everyone who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they, with all that belonged to them, went down alive into Sheol. The earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. On the next day, however, the whole congregation of the Israelites rebelled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against them, Moses and Aaron turned toward the tent of meeting. The cloud had covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from this congregation so that I may consume them in a moment and they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses had ordered and ran into the middle of the assembly where the plague had already begun among the people. He put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading is found from Matthew chapter 23. Here, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, take a moment and pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, this part of the story of Israel's wilderness journey, that you would uh, give us wisdom and give us ears to hear uh, and imagination to understand what exactly you'd like for us to hear from it and how you might lead us in being a people that take your word seriously. So meet us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. So uh, there are parts of the Bible that we read, and you wonder at the very conclusion of the reading when we respond, this is the word of the Lord, and we join unanimously and say, thanks be to God. You wonder, like, how exactly do I add my thanks uh, for this story? And this is one of those stories, right? It's a challenging story because we struggle to understand what exactly God might be saying to us, particularly in those stories of the Bible that feel very disturbing and disorienting to us, and certainly don't always fit easily into the story of Jesus himself, or at least how we understand the story of Jesus as we read about it in the Gospels. Rowan Williams suggests that as we approach these parts of the Bible that feel just laden with tension in them, that maybe it's an invitation for us to sort of put on curiosity and wonderment, really, so that we look in these stories that very often take us into some of the darkest spaces of the human heart, right? Some of the darkest activity of human beings uh, that we might actually ask a very different question, and it's just simply this. How is it that a good and holy God is able to continually move the story of his promised future forward amidst people like us, whose stories are so profoundly inconsistent within themselves, right? I look at my own life and the inconsistencies show up. In a few moments in our worship, we're going to confess sin where we're looking explicitly at our own inconsistencies. How does God's goodness continue to sort of unfold amidst people like us? Maybe that's a helpful way of approaching a story like this. Now, we didn't read the entirety of the story, uh, not because we're avoiding it, but because it's extremely long. It's over 1,200 words long. It's 50 verses long. And so I'm going to recap parts of the story as we go along. And let me begin by this way, by just noting that there are three movements in this story, the rebellion, the story of rebellion, the story of judgment, and the story of hope. So first, rebellion. So there are two movements of resistance that arise here before Moses and Aaron. Uh, On the one hand, there's a religious dimension, and that's led by Korah. Uh, He's of the priestly community. He's of the Levites. He sort of leads them in rebelling against Aaron. And then there's the political side of the rebellion that's led by Dathan and Eberim, who are representative of the politics. They're, they're, um, They're mostly frustrated with not Aaron, but but Moses' leadership. 
Korah and the Levite community has been given specific duties in connection with tabernacle worship. Uh, That's outlined in Numbers 4, if you want to go back and take a quick peek at that at some point. Uh, but, But basically here, the argument is simply this, why the hierarchy? Why does Aaron get to be at the top? Why does he have special duties that aren't allowed to all of us? And in a sense, we could perhaps understand that because he's looking at this general notion that God intends that all of Israel would be priests, that he would live among all of his people. Uh, We say the same thing in the church today when we speak of the priesthood of all believers. We recognize that we have a, a common life before the Lord as priest that's, that could be characterized as priestly. Only here, Korah is, is frustrated that Aaron is at the top. So why, if this general truth is true, is there some type of hierarchy? Is some differentiation of roles? Are not our roles interchangeable? Seems to be the kind of thing that's being asked. Or perhaps there's a deeper motive inside of Korah himself, an anxiety that for his own advancement in some sense, and many commentators point that out. It's interesting to think about this complaint in our contemporary setting because we live in a culture that generally has allergies to hierarchy, right? So we might easily sort of say, what's so wrong with Cora's argument, right? But there does seem to be a resentment here that's beneath his rebellious posture. It's a problem that's pointed out as one of envy of positional power, a desire that some commentators note seems to be that there's this sin of the temptation to utilize office to one's own advantage rather than for the sake of the common good. This was the temptation that the devil put to Jesus in the wilderness, if you remember, when he stands on the highest point of the temple, the center of religious activity, and he says, throw yourself down. It's a chance really for Jesus or a temptation for Jesus to sort of utilize his status as the son of God for his own sense of well-being and future rather than for the common good of the coming of God's kingdom. The political resistance is led by Dathan and Ibram. They were of the clan of Reuben, and this is the clan that is passed over. He's the, Reuben, of course, was the firstborn of Jacob's sons, right? And he's passed over in favor of the tribe of Judah in Numbers chapter two. They view Moses's leadership as a colossal failure. Moses has walked them essentially in their own imagination into the death trap of the wilderness. It's not only not a land flowing with milk and honey, there's not even the capacity to garden in this space. And so they bring their complaint to Moses and to Aaron. Rebellion, resistance, a big part of this story. So then second, this sort of movement of justice that begins or judgment that begins to happen. As Moses and Aaron hear this, they characteristically, as we saw last week, do what? They fall onto the ground, which is symbolic, of course, of their own posture as leaders before God, leading by submission to the Lord himself. Korah and the Levites are then given a test of their priesthood. Uh, We didn't read the large section of that, but essentially what is told them is, hey, everyone will take a censer, and this would be a a symbolic part of the priesthood in which they're offering incense before the Lord. And so everyone is invited to hold a censer, but the Lord will choose which one is the true priest. That's 
the temptation, or rather the challenge that is put before the community that is challenging Aaron, right, and his priesthood. God will choose the real priest. And so the 250 or so Levites plus Aaron take their censers and they show up before the Lord. And in that moment of showing up, we're told that the Lord is ready to consume the entirety of the congregation. He's done. But Moses and Aaron once again, characteristically fall to the ground and they pray and they ask this really beautiful statement or question, shall one man sin and the whole congregation pay? Verse 26, the Lord then turns to the community of Israel and says to all of the community, turn away from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, or you also will be swept away for their sins. There's the answer. Now, this is hard to hear, right? I mean, I think, I think it's hard to hear. It's hard for me to hear, and I bet my imagination is it's hard for you to hear. Uh, judgment sweeping over those that are only tangentially or passively or silently connected to the evil that is taking place in their community. That doesn't seem fair to us, largely because we're so accustomed in our cultural setting of simply thinking about sin and brokenness as individual affairs. We're not accustomed to understanding the interconnectivity of our lives to systems, to other people, to communities itself. We situate sin and evil within individuals rather than systemically in the community itself, which seems to be how God is reading the circumstance. And so here God tells the community to become discerning, right? To sort of see what's happening in your midst and engage your own agency differently. In other words, don't be a silent bystander to their evil. Don't be passive in relation to their evil, but do something, side with the Lord versus the rebellion. It's an opportunity for individuals to wake up and express their agency differently. So it's interesting, right, as you sort of hear me sort of articulate that, you almost immediately land in contemporary American culture or even world culture or global culture in which we recognize we're in a moment of racial reckoning in our, in our country, right, in which we're having to ask hard questions about, well, what is system, systemic racism? What is institutionalized racism? What does that even look like if I don't consider myself a racist? Those questions are hard questions, but this text does urge us to recognize the validity of those questions, I think, that we begin to recognize that the evil that individuals perpetuate gets worked out culturally, and God here is inviting the community to pull away. Many are beginning to understand racism and white supremacy can't be limited to individual actions. Here, God invites the community to see the death that is at work within a system that is unfolding within them, a trajectory of being human that doesn't fit the good and beautiful community of God's kingdom come. And he's asking the people to wake up and recognize that, discern it. And then judgment erupts, right? The earth opens and swallows Dathan and Abram and their families in a massive sinkhole and fire sweeps out from the presence of God and consumes the 250 imposter priests. It's a horrific and graphic scene within this part of the Bible in which the hidden death that was always lurking beneath or behind in the background of the act of rebellion itself 
right? Beneath the religious and the political rebellion, but it comes foregrounded. It, it sort of overtakes them. In other words, they begin to experience the truth of their actions. It's a visual and an experiential depiction of what was already there. God just lets it run its course almost immediately. The people are appropriately terrified, and yet we read that they cling to what? The story of Korah, Dathan, and Ibram are telling rather than the story of Aaron and Moses, and ultimately refuse to take in the meaning of these actions of God's own self, these actions of judgment. So think about this. Sometimes the drama, or even we could say the miracle of judgment, doesn't change our minds. Have you ever experienced that in your own life? We're so wed to what sociologist Arlie Huckchild, speaking about current political day divisions in our country between the right and the left, everyone gets implicated in her study, by the way, uh, but she says that there's a deep story at work in either side of the political divide that leads us to not sort of encounter opposite truths and learn from them and grow and move on, but rather to double down on our positions where we already were, our misshapen hearts. There's something, I think, for that as we read this part of the Bible and understand there's something of that happening inside the community of Israel as they double down on the very broken story and a position of Korah and Dathan and Ibram to their own detriment. Here, the people begin to blame Moses. They say he's the one that's killing the people of God and causing this plague. Suffering, you see, can distort the way that you and I think. It doesn't automatically lead to wisdom. It's a context in which we might become wise, but it doesn't automatically lead to wisdom. It's an opportunity for us to grasp those misshapen parts of the self and of our world and to look into that darkness as the Bonhoeffer quote at the beginning of our reflection urges us to do and then to begin to wake up to the beauty of God's promise that is so different from all that is misshapen inside of our culture and our very lives. And in this moment, what you and I need as the people of God is we need the community of God's people who are resonant with the things that God is saying that help us see ourselves a little bit more clearly. Maybe you've experienced that just in the context of Christian friendship when a friend has heard your story and they've sort of gently urged you to say, is there a part you're missing? Is there something larger that God is doing that maybe your hurt and your wound is keeping you from seeing in this moment? The beauty of Christian community is that we help enlarge the picture of God's presence, the understanding of how he's active in our world and in our culture and in our very lives personally, taking our stories to a very different conclusion, ending than we would ever get on our own. We need the faithful community because wisdom isn't cultivated in solitude. Rebellion, judgment, now what about hope? We wanna to get to hope, right? What about hope? How does the good promise of God's world come, his kingdom come, sort of fit into a story like this? Well, Moses calls Aaron, right, the priest, to behave priestly. And we see that in this particular story as, as Aaron, whose incense has been accepted before the Lord, right? He takes his censer and loads it with fire and loads it with incense, and he goes out into the middle of the community of God's people, 
away from the tabernacle center, right? Away from that activity of priestly, sort of in the box, so to speak. He moves into the world itself and he stands in the midst of the community of God's people and the plague stops. He makes atonement. The plague stops. God hears and he sees and he honors the work of the real priest. Notice then this strange twist that happens in the story. God tells them to take the censers of all the false priests, right? The 250 priests, right? And to create a covering for the altar of God. Now, interesting thing to do. You pull that sort of abused space of power, right? Into the very center of the tabernacle itself, really. And it, 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 what is God doing? He's incorporating in the liturgy of Israel's worship their act of rebellion. He's showing us the insufficiency of its story, but taking it to a very different space. In verse 40, we begin to get a sense of why this is so important. It's so that whenever the priests would lead Israel in an act of worship, that with every approach to God, with every offering of worship, they would remember that we gather at God's invitation and not our own insistence. And that we gather to God as an act of his grace toward us and not an act of our own consistent stories. We need grace. We need mercy. Our history is way too inconsistent for us to relate to God based on any other thing. So then jump forward now as we pull this into the New Testament through the life of Jesus, through the lens of Jesus' life into the story of the church. I want to take you to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 near the very end of the Bible. This is a moment when John, who is being given this great revelation, this story, this imaginative reading of history for the church of his time and for his own good, he is exiled on an island prison, excluded here from the community of God's people. And as John would have experienced life and as the church, the early Christians would have experienced life in that moment of Roman culture, it feels and their experience would confirm this, that evil is winning the day that the goodness of God's promise is just systematically being stopped, brought to an end through persecutions of different sorts. And here, as a leader of the church, John is imprisoned and exiled and moved away, isolated. But in this particular moment, the Lord does what? He gives John this very unique gift of being able to witness history unfolding from the vantage point of heaven itself, the throne room. That's where this action takes place in the book of Revelation. It's a moment when John is sort of being able to see, well, what does God see amidst the inconsistencies of human history, of human life that would just have nothing to do with the goodness of God's coming kingdom? In chapter five, John is standing in this assembly and he's worshiping with the assembly of elders and beings and you know heavenly beings. And in that moment, um, there's a scroll that it would seem no one is worthy to open. And it's a scroll that is symbolic of the promise of God advancing and the seals that are meant to be ripped off or symbolic of sort of moving from one chapter to the next, the way you're reading a novel and you want to get to the next chapter to find out what happens then. And you want to get on to the end to see what happens then. And it seems that as someone says, you know, who is worthy to sort of unlock this history? Who is worthy to sort of open this scroll that no one is standing forward, no one is coming forward? And John begins to weep. Why? 
because the promise of God seems stuck. It seems to not be moving at all. What would that mean? It would mean that the injustice, the inequity, the poverty, the sickness, the abuses of power, in our context, racism, white supremacy, abuses of every sort, general suffering, political chaos that so many of us feel in this particular moment, loss and death, that these things are stuck too. They just go on forever. What would you feel like if you were in a moment where it felt like there was no hope of goodness winning? John wept. I think we'd weep too because that is a horrific idea. An elder then turns to John in that moment of vision and he says, hey, don't weep because look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then John says, I saw standing there amidst this throne and this worshiping congregation, a lamb standing as if it had been slain. And the readers of this would immediately know, and John himself knew, this is the story of Jesus that is showing up here in the middle of this particular moment of revelation. So John gazes on the holiest place of all the universe, the throne room of God himself, the heavenly court from that side of reality. And he sees Jesus, the Davidic heir, but a priest forever marked with the wound of death himself, a lamb looking as if slain. You see, our hope is just simply this, that God is committed to bringing about his good and beautiful community, not just as an idea that is promised, but a reality that gets embodied in the space of earthly life. And he's doing that in the person of Jesus. And he does it now in our own lives across the various kinds of human experiences we live with, our joys, our sorrows, our sickness, our health, our plenty and our want, his enduring capacity to end all weeping by taking sorrow and death into his own story. There is deep mystery there, but it is beautiful mystery. And it is the hope that God sets before the church now as we think about how we look into those dark spaces of our own stories, of the people that we love closest to us, our families, as we think about the community of our own churches as we merge, as we think about our life in a city like Philadelphia, as we think about our life inside of this state of Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth, so sorry, or as we think about our sort of life in the United States or even in the world globally, what would it look like this morning if you held all of these spaces of your involvement in life loosely but you looked steadily to the deep story that God is telling our world in the person of Jesus. I think that's the hope he invites us to embody. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.